hello everybody. We've got to keep really quiet today and really still. We're going to be talking to Tom Cronin, producer of a great new movie called The Portal, a mindfulness guru and a very good guy. And I think George is with him right now and Tom's trying to teach George how to shut up, which is almost impossible. So let's get on with it. Here's Tom Cronin, everybody. Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to our show, Tom. Welcome to Float Your Boat. How are you? Mate, it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me along. I'm feeling very well. Fresh out of the shower and had my brekkie, so good to go. Well, apparently you're a, you're a, you're a neighbour of Brett's. Is that correct? Pretty close. He's one street away. Yeah, I'm almost looking to his backyard. One yeah. street away, and it took seven seasons for Brett to get around <laughs> you. Wow, sorry. <laughs> He's a slow mover. Yes, and I think I think ordinary people with extraordinary stories probably includes. I mean, that that, that probably encapsulates everyone. But um, you must have an extraordinary story too, Tom. I I, um, I doubt that. What you're doing today is what you started as a career when you, you know, left school. Um, but tell us a little bit about, you know, your background, going back to where you were born, where you grew up, the school you went to, and then what happened after that. Gosh, that's a long way back, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I grew up on a really. <laughs> I'll try not to be too long-winded in it, but I grew up on a, a beautiful country farm where my mum and dad still live, and my bedroom's still there. And my school trophies are still on the shelf in that room down in a a little town called Thelmere, which is about an hour and a half out of Sydney, southwest of Sydney, past Campbelltown. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a beautiful old, probably 180-year-old sort of sandstone country uh, homestead there now, um, which we we bought. It was very dilapidated when we bought it. And we moved in from, uh, from the city to the country for a sea change when I was a little kid, seven or eight years old. And uh, it was just the most beautiful place to grow up, you know, just surrounded by so much bushland and nature. You know, it was a very raw and rustic existence and, and I loved it. And um, when I left school, after going to school at an all-boys Catholic school at St. Greg's Campbelltown, still getting over that and being scarred by that, but <laughs> 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 left lots of uh, scar tissue, but um I really wanted to be a journalist. I, I did modern and ancient history, three in modern history, and I, I really loved writing and I loved 
um, was quite opinionated, uh, much to the annoyance of my family. And I really wanted to make an impact in the world and, and be a journalist. So I got a degree, applied for a degree at journalism at Bathurst University and Macquarie University ended up getting into Macquarie. So I was all set for that, but I took, which was a big thing back then, not so much these days, but I took a gap year. And that's where, you know, anyone young these days probably doesn't even know what it is, but I, I saved up some bickies and decided to go backpacking around the world and blew most of my money in Amsterdam, which we'll leave that for another day. Um, and then, <laughs> Like most of us did. And then I got back and I had no money and I was supposed to start this degree in journalism and I was going to write articles for Time magazine and save the world from greedy, greedy capitalism. And uh, I've got to make some money. So I applied for a bunch of jobs in the paper. You know, the old Saturday morning paper was chock full of the employment section. Mm. And I just would write off to all these jobs. And I managed to land a job on a trading room floor as a broker. And it was so far from what I intended to do with my uni degree, but it was really, really good money. And so I took the job. I was going to be there for three months before uni started and I was just going to make some money and then and I didn't tell them, but I was going to leave after three months. It was a bit sneaky. But after three months, they were paying me a ton of money and probation came around. I got a pay rise and the, I loved the job. You know, it was fast and furious and exciting. So I'll just put uni off for one more year. And then at the end of the next year, I got another pay rise, more bonuses. It was fast and furious and more fun, I thought. And just year after year, I kept thinking, I'll just do one more year. I'll just do one more year. And to cut a long story short, that ended up being 26 years as a broker. Wow. And I never left it. You know, I just, every year you get better at it. You make more money, you get bigger bonuses. And so it just got what we call the golden handcuffs put on you. Mm. And it became harder and harder to leave. Now. Just remembering this was late 80s. And so if anyone's seen Wolf of Wall Street, they'll know that Jordan Belfort was 22 in 1987 and he started his career as a broker. And I started my career as a broker in 1987 and I was 19. So it was very much like what they showed in the film. I couldn't believe how accurately portrayed the finance markets or that, that was stock markets he was in. I was in finance markets. Similar sort of energy, same setup, massive trading room floor, 95% men, just big, blokey, testosterone-fueled energy. And it was just cowboys going crazy. It was reckless abandoned. It was unchecked. There was no HR. We could do anything almost. It was kind of crazy. And that was the year we had Bud Fox and Gordon Gecko from Wall Street were born. Yeah. It was the year we had Sherman McCoy from Bonfire the Vanities was born. He was a, a bomb broker as well. So it was also, I think, around that time that Brett Easton Ellis created his crazy uh, character, American Psycho, was also in, America, in, in the mm. finance market. So it was kind of a weird, perverse time in finance markets. And I got swept along as a young sort of fresh country kid into that market. Uh, and before long, you're doing lines of cocaine in the toilets with your other colleagues. And, you know, as you've you got credit cards from the company, corporate Amex cards. You've got a sports car that they give you. It's kind of like, Wow. Well, it was really, really like that. Like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like hookers, in the, hookers on the floor after hours and all that stuff. <laughs> it wasn't after hours. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I don't want to get too far, but, you know, they, they, had, they had, this is, you know, it, it's terrible to look back at it, but they did have strippers coming on the floor for celebrating people's birthdays. Right. It's interesting you should say that, Tom, because I, I, um, I actually remember... Um, 
being invited by a fellow I met at university um, uh, to start as a chalky mm -hmm. for the futures yep. uh, market. It was um, with Ord Manette. And I remember going up the lift and the lift doors opened and all the boys were kicking a football around on the floor. They had moved the tables out to the sides and they were playing football. And I thought, what the... I'm here for a job interview and they're playing football on the floor. That's amazing. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one story. It's a fascinating one. One Because basically half of the floor would be empty after midday uh, and would not repopulate. Like people would, what we call FTRs, that's a failure to return. So 50% <laughs> of the company would have an FTR because you go to the pub with your clients and the market basically would just be out for the afternoon getting wasted. Um, but there was one guy that I won't say his name, but he he had an interview with uh, the boss, the CEO, lined up for midday, and it was at a bar, as we generally had our interviews at a bar. And um, apparently, uh, someone had rung, uh, come back to the office at about six o'clock, and spoke to the CEO and said, "Hey, boss, there's a there's a kid sitting down at the bar. He's been there since midday, uh, waiting for your interview." And uh, he's been sitting there drinking at the bar, waiting to see if you would turn up. And uh, the CEO went down there and says, you've got the job start tomorrow. <laughs> that was basically the qualifications. If you could sit and handle a long session of drinking, then you're pretty much guaranteed a job. Yes, yes. Wow. Wow. So, but so, but were they, they were successful years for you, obviously. Yeah, it was fast and furious. I was very good at what I did. Um, I, I uh, you know, surprisingly... Um, could be very quick and efficient on the floor. And, uh, and I, you know, did quite well as a broker. And so that en enabled me to make lots of money and, you know, stay in the job basically. So amongst all of that, you got, were you still working as a broker when you met your wife and got married? Yeah. Uh, we met when I was 22 and she was 20. Uh, and so we, uh, she's been through it all with me uh we stood the test of time 30 years we've been together wow and uh and i know you've got two wonderful children because i know them both um your your elder one is uh friends with my son um so they went through that whole process so so let's skip forward now a little bit when when did you decide to chuck it all in and why hmm. When you say chuck it all in, I assume you mean leave finance and yeah. do what I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, it was a, there's, there's another little section to that story, which I'll, I think is important to include. So after 10 years of being in that job, which was a lot of partying, a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, very little sleep, my nervous system, and, and the part of the problem with that was that most of the brokers would nine to five be doing lots of Charlie, lots of drinking, lots of partying late nights, fast and furious on the floor. But on weekends, they would all sleep. They'd play around round of golf with their mates and, you know, watch some sport and chill out and relax. Um, I got really, and I was very unique in, in that, at that time in the finance uh, industry. I didn't know anyone else other than a couple of other guys in the industry that got really caught up in the rave culture of the late 80s, early 90s and, and, and midway through the 90s. And so I, on weekends, I was doing a lot of raving with, you know, as you know, what goes on in a rave, you have very little sleep and you party all weekend, recovery parties and all sorts of stuff. So my nervous system wasn't getting any break. It was just put on massive, massive demands week in, week out, year after year. 
So what started to show up was these extreme symptoms of my body saying, we're not happy with this situation. We really want things to change, but I just ignore them. So insomnia, a lot of agitation, anxiety, being very stressed, being overwhelmed, being um, just very jumpy. And uh, I ignored those symptoms and kept doing what I was doing and they just got worse and worse. And eventually what happened was this culminated in 1996 on a balmy summer's day in my house in Bondi and Rickard Avenue that I owned, uh, I woke up and that was uh, a very dark day of my life where I had what I think is technically called a nervous breakdown. Uh, I collapsed on the floor in my bathroom. Uh, I couldn't breathe. I felt like a knife had gone through my heart. Uh, I wanted to vomit. I needed to go to the toilet. I had cold, clammy sweats. My vision blurred. I actually thought I was having a heart attack. And at that point, I was so miserable and depressed with my life. It sounded really glamorous, but I was actually really full of disdain for myself, my addictions, who I was as a person, the misery of my job, which I hated. And uh, at that point, thinking that this was the end of it, I didn't really feel like I needed to fight. There was no will to fight. I kind of, kind of almost hoped that it was. So it was a pretty dark time and the anxiety and panic attacks that I'd been getting and the depression was pretty horrible and really, really debilitating. But that day, my wife, um, my, who was my partner then, she helped me get to a doctor and he explained what was happening. Um, and that really crushed me more so than anything. I probably would have preferred to get a diagnosis that it was a heart attack, but to hear that it was a nervous breakdown really, really crushed me. And so... What had happened was um, they sent me to psychiatrists, put me on pharmaceutical drugs and just the traditional Western medicine model. But I, I came across meditation at that time by accident or divine intervention. And it was really a light bulb moment for me when I started to experience this spiritual awakening very quickly. And it was like everything that I was looking for in the drugs, the drinking, the addictions, the raves, I was like, holy moly, this is really what I was looking for. I was looking to find this, and some would call it God or source or spirit, my higher self, my divine nature. You can give it any name you want, but there was something that I didn't know existed that was in me that wasn't out there, and it was in a deep, sweet silence and serenity. It was so profound and beautiful. And so that started this transition into this Eastern philosophy, meditation, mindfulness, and um, interestingly, I started meditating and doing a lot of studies and a lot of courses. Whilst I was a broker, I went back to being a broker. I took some time off and then I went back to being a broker for 16 more years, but without the drinking and the drugs. And then over time, over those 16 years, I just became more and more compelled that I wanted to, there was a different path for me. I needed to, not needed, but I just, it was just destiny that I was going to do something more than just be a broker for the rest of my life. It was such a strong calling that um, eventually it got to a point that was so impossible for me to go to work that I had to make a change. And so we sold our house, you know, going from being a broker and a very substantial salary to being a meditation teacher financially wasn't the biggest and best decision, but um, it certainly was an important decision that I had to make. Hi, it's Gino from Bondi Broker. In today's changing times, the importance of health and financial security has never been more important. At Bondi Broker, we work with you to improve your financial security by offering free financial health checks, assisting in reducing your debt, and gain competitive rates to improve your cash flow. Bondi Broker gets you in the best financial health so you can focus on what matters most. 
Visit our website today for your free consultation at bondibroker.com.au. Uh, Tom, uh, just just uh, it's been a curiosity of mine, and I've never really bothered to look this up, but what is the difference between meditation and mindfulness? It's mm, a good question. For me, and it's open to you know various viewpoints, and this is my subjective viewpoint, so I'm, uh, if it's not correct for someone listening, then that's totally cool. Um, and this is just my perspective on it. Uh, meditation is what I do when I withdraw from the senses withdraw from the external world and I move into an inner stillness and silence beyond the world of form and phenomenon and relativity. That's where me, the subject and the object, the world I'm engaging in has a dynamic and exchange a relationship. Yes. And that's future past and present. So then I go into inner stillness and silence. That's meditation for me. Mindfulness is being observant of my interaction with the world outside of my meditation and being aware of the nature of my thoughts Am I speaking quickly? Am I walking quickly? Am I walking slowly? Am I eating slowly? Am I eating quickly? Um, what am I doing with my emotional state? Am my emotions taking control of me? Am I being reactive? So mindfulness is what I do outside of my meditation. And mindfulness, I get it. So mindfulness is something that you can actually have switched on all the time. Yeah, that's right. You become more mindful. From, for me, the way I see it is I become more mindful as I meditate more. That sounds like that sounds like a full time job to me. It, it can be cumbersome, but ultimately, and this depends on everyone's perspective of life. The question is, what are you here for? What are you doing here? What's the purpose of this? Is it to get a good job? Is it to have children? Is it to get married? Is it to have a Bitcoin portfolio? Is it to, you know, win a premiership at sport? Or, or and for other people, it's to be more awake to see through the matrix, to be more aware, to be more autonomous and sovereign in our own state that isn't dependent upon outcome. 99% of the world's population still exists in what we call outcome-oriented fulfillment. If the outcome happens, I get fulfilled. If my team wins, if I get the lover, if I have the children, if I pay off the mortgage, if I get the holiday home, if Bitcoin goes up, that triggers a response in a subjective, objective relationship where I feel better when that outcome happens. The problem with outcome-oriented fulfillment is, A, the outcomes don't usually arrive and meet our expectation, or B, if they do, the outcome fades quite quickly, then we need another outcome because our, dependence, our happiness is dependent upon that outcome. So have you given up that? What happens is you don't need to depend upon the outcomes because you attain and sustain a state of blissful equanimity in the state of being uh, consciously aware. And what happens is that because your levels of bliss are so much higher than the emotional happiness that happens with the outcomes, that regardless of the outcomes, you sustain a level of, I'm good regardless. Yeah, so they're not, they're, so, so it, it becomes less about destina destination and more about the journey, yeah? Uh, yeah, because the journey in every moment is full of bliss. And therefore, when there's enough bliss being produced because of the state that you're sustaining, then there's an interesting dynamic here. The first thing is, well, I'm just blissful. So I, I watch with a fascination of the world's unfolding mm -hmm. without this craving and need for it to have to happen for me. So that's the first thing that drops away is this, this ache and need. The, interestingly, the second thing, based upon the laws of attraction, because you're in a state of calm, 
sweet surrender and serenity and lightness and happiness, you attract a lot of outcomes that are actually quite good anyway. Yeah, look, that, that, that is, um, it's part of uh, taking, taking your foot off the accelerator, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're trying so hard to get happy in our world and we're, we're pushing so hard to get things to experience that degree of happiness. And what we're seeing, interestingly, and we haven't, it's amazing that us as a species that's very intelligent, we haven't quite worked out the correlation between our levels of increasing affluence in the last 5,000 years and our increasing levels of anxiety and depression. <laughs> and suicide. And suicide, yeah, yeah. And if you look at the cultures and tribes and traditions and religious practices where they have basically not just uh, bare minimum but just very simple lifestyles, but even practices of surrender, that's Lent, Ramadan, Tapas, these are all traditions of foregoing pleasure to have a higher experience, you'll find that the, there's, a, there's a direct relationship between those cultures, traditions and religions where they do that and greater degrees of happiness and fulfilment. Yeah, it's, our culture is about getting more, getting more, getting more, and then having higher levels of unhappiness. Yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, Tom. I remember this meme that went round. You know, the, um, the poor people, uh, a photo of poor people in India and rich people on a on a Pacific island. You know, and and the the poor people had smiles on their faces, and they were very very happy looking people, and the, the rich people on this island in the Pacific who, who had everything. Um, weren't even talking to each other. They were just miserable looking and not talking to each other. And there was, there, there was a, I mean, the intention of the meme was to show that, you know, happiness doesn't come with things. It can be there, can be, yeah. but it's not necessary. Yeah, look, I've, I've met very poor, unhappy people and very yes. poor, happy people. I've met very rich, happy people and very rich, unhappy people. Uh, and what we want to get across to people is that it's not, dependent upon either mm. i've met some of the most enlightened brilliant uh conscious and wise sages that lived in caves in the yeah. edges of the the ganges in uh in rishikesh in india um but i've also met some very miserable street people as well yeah yeah you know it's it's one of those things that's um uh you know there's an old saying that money money is a magnifier right so it magnifies what you are on the inside so if yeah, you yeah so if you're fundamentally unhappy it just magnifies that. But if you're happy, it's, you know, it takes you to another level. Um, but tell us a little bit about your, your journey of self-discovery. I mean, you mentioned that you went to the Ganges. Uh, um, tell us a little bit about what journey you took. I followed, I did a lot of research into different, the first thing was I needed to meditate. I knew, I knew I wanted to meditate. And I looked at all the different types of meditation that were out there. And this was 1996. This was pre-apps like Headspace and Calm. Mm. But uh, I got very drawn into one that was quite science-based and very efficient and effective at getting me into a deep state quickly. And it had this interesting thing called transcending, where transcend means to go beyond. So you go beyond this space of me identified with me and that's the space of me my sensory perception what i see taste touch hear and smell me and my emotions me and my thoughts you transcend that interestingly i i really was drawn to that partly because i loved transcending in effect through the rave culture you know taking an ecstasy and losing myself in the laser lights and the trance music and i felt a very mystical spiritual experience that would happen in those moments Unfortunately, it came with extreme karmic consequences under the laws of cause and effect. 
But when I had this transcending experience in meditation, which was to go into this blissful, peaceful, uh, utopian paradigm that wasn't influenced by the external world, um, I, I knew that this was a pathway that I was important for me to follow. And so in Sanskrit, that word's called Turiya, T-U-R-I-Y-A, and Turiya means the fourth. And what that means is that there's a fourth state that we have access to that predominantly most of the world aren't currently experiencing. And that's the state of you without thinking and feeling. That's without feeling, that's emotional body, that's emotions that are reacting to the world and thinking. And the big question is, who are you if you're not thinking or feeling? And that's what people need to start experiencing. And that's what we call being. You are actually being at the same time. So it's the analogy I use is there's a wave that is the expressive aspect of the ocean that is temporary and fluctuates and is affected in its dynamic by other things, wind and currents and high-low pressure systems are influencing the surface of the ocean. However, the ocean isn't only the wave, it's the depth and the stillness as well that's way deeper than the wave. And we have access to that. It's just that most people don't know what the tool is or the technique is to get that experience. And so that's what motivated the film and the book called The Portal was to inspire people to start having access to Turiya. And so for me, the tradition was a Vedic practice that was from northern India predominantly around 5,000 to 10,000 years old and had stood the test of time. And what came with the practice, that's the technique, is a very deep body of beautiful, rich knowledge that is applicable to all areas of life. And that's what I really liked about it was that integrativeness, integratedness of the, the, the knowledge into daily life, which was really important to me. So, Tom, I, once again, I guess I bring it back to the, the idea that society's been set up not to, do, not to have this sort of lifestyle in a way. Yes, in India, they've been practising these practices for centuries but in where we are the western world it's not set up for that i mean how do you how do you combat that yeah it's a great question you know how do we integrate this into western lifestyle and you know it always brings me back to two people uh and uh, i'll give you one of them word for word quotes and the other one's an adaptation of their quote oprah winfrey her whole company uh, at own TV, uh, all meditate using that transcending style meditation at nine in the morning and four in the afternoon. That's traditionally what we recommend is two meditations a day, two little windows of 20 minutes that you take out of being affected and influenced by the world and just find your own sovereignty and autonomy in your own state through that 20 minute window. And she says, it's only from that space can you create your best work and your best life. The other one is from the world's largest hedge fund manager called Ray Dalio, who runs Bridgewater Associates, and he manages $180 billion worth of assets in his hedge fund and is probably one of the greatest hedge fund managers out there and is highly, highly revered and respected. And he tweeted, of all things, that the key to his success is his meditation technique. And so... We don't have to be spiritual gurus or monks or what we call ascetics that walk away from the world and shave our heads and go off in an ashram. This is a technique that allows us to integrate on a daily basis. So my wife and I meditate every day. You know, we sit on the sofa, the kids will be off doing their thing and 
we'll just have a window of time where we just re regather, we re we recalibrate, we allow our mind and body to de-excite, to quieten, and to have a, an accessible spiritual experience, but also physiological deep rest. And it just allows us to optimize our state. And if we optimize our internal state, then that will spill over into our external state as well. So, Tom, tell us more about the portal because that's been a big pro – I know because I know you. It's yeah. been a, a, a very big project for you over, a, like, what, five or six years or longer? Nine now. It's nearly killed me, I must admit. So, <laughs> so, nine, so nine years of a journey. Um, so tell us about the portal. Yeah. Uh, the portal is a film and book experience that we created to inspire people to realize the power of meditation through storytelling and we we didn't want to make a documentary that pointed fingers at you and told you you should do this because um and here's the stats why we didn't want lab coats and men in you know with charts and science what we wanted to do was take you on a journey with six people that had had their own crisis and move through that crisis and free themselves of the bondage and the ongoing effect of that crisis using meditation. Because I could see that happen with me and I wanted to showcase, not using my story, I was too shy for that, but to use other people's stories to show. And so we scoured the world uh, and we did research on over 300 stories and we chose six of them based upon a number of different factors and their diversity uh, to show us um, these beautiful stories of, of transformation through crisis and um so that's the film in the book we also have three futurists and philosophers that are embedded in amongst those stories to present a more macro perspective of a global crisis and what what does this look like for us as a human species that where we're at are we facing our own you know um our own potential existential crisis as a species and interestingly just as a side note and a segue I had a conversation two days ago with a very large hedge fund manager or a, so I should say an investor fund that is investing in existential risk, uh, you know, businesses that are going to help, help humanity prevent our uh, potential termination. And he was saying that the number of scientists and experts in this field are putting 2,100, that's 2,100, that's 80 years away as a very high probability for termination of an entire species if we continue on the current trajectory that we're on right now. And so we look at that macro perspective of humanity's crisis as well as our own individual crisis. So that's the portal which we'll be launching in about four weeks' time <laughs> after nine years. <laughs> so, but, but you did have a, a launch a year or so before COVID into the, into the cinemas, right? Yeah, we did a cinema launch just in Australia, New Zealand and America where we went into uh, cinemas and we did a Q&A tour of the USA, New Zealand and Australia. Um, and then we were going to through 20, that was late 2019. And then in 2020, what we were going to do, we were going to create a, a community type experience out of the cinemas, but in like yoga studios, church groups, schools, universities, where we saw the importance of a communal experience around the film. There was a meditation in there and binaural beats and it was a beautiful, there's rap music. It's quite a different type of documentary. And we felt that the communal experience with the film was really important. So that was 2020. But then when COVID hit in February, 
we had to put all that on hold. And at that point, we hadn't quite prepared ourselves for a digital launch. And we looked at a number of different ways to go with a digital release, you know, your platforms like Stan and Amazon Prime and Netflix. And we had some offers on the streaming platforms. We looked at uh, distributors that were going to sell our film into other agencies, but none of it really stacked up as a great model for us. So we, we took a while till we really landed the model that we were looking for. And that comes down to a model that is quite exciting and very fresh. And that's where we're inviting the world to become a partner of ours, where anyone and everyone can share in 50% of the revenue of the rental of the film, the purchase of the film, and then also the meditation program that comes after the film. And we're doing a straight 50-50 rev share with everyone and anyone that wants to become a partner. So how... Yeah, how does, sorry, George, but how does that, so how does it work? Like, is, so Basically, when someone registers a partner, we'll have, we have a partner registration page, which will be live in about two days' time. Mm-hmm. What will happen is, um, and we're talking to, gosh, New York Times, Ticker Tech's come on board. We're talking to yoga studios. A lot of yoga studios have signed up, distributed, uh, sorry, celebrities, influencers. It could be mums and dads, you know, that know 10 people. Um, so when someone registers as a partner, they'll get a unique link. And that link will be tracked back to them and it'll be cookied so that anyone that buys the meditation program or goes and re-gifts the film or goes and re-rents the film or um, whatever it is that goes through that, then it gets attributed to them. And on a monthly basis, the funds get automatically paid into their PayPal or bank account um, as as a, a contribution to their effort for basically them sharing that link. And it could be a lot of podcasters are signed up, so I'd like to get you guys signed up. So if you share the link in your podcast, say go to, the, to, you know, here's the link and then anyone that rents the film through that link, that will be attributed to you. So it's like a, in a, in a business sense, it's like a multi-level marketing. To some thing, respects right? it is, yeah. We've got a two-tiered two marketing model where the, the world becomes our marketing agency. We'll pay them 50% of the revenue for doing that. The second tier is a referral system where the referee that refers a partner so if someone says oh gosh i know lady gaga would love to be into this film and they register lady gaga on her own accord so lady gaga registers through that person they get five percent of what lady gaga would get so if lady gaga raises a million dollars through the rental of the film and the purchasing of the program then the referring partner will get fifty thousand dollars for for connecting us well, that sounds that that sounds really generous, and um, and and that's um, you know uh, what what platform are you using to get the word out? Is it so? It's not one of these TV platforms or the yeah. We're know, doing it on our own website, so it's a it's a system that we're building ourselves. It hasn't been built right. before, so it's integrated with uh, a platform called Thrivecart and Vimeo. The film's hosted on Vimeo, rented through our own platform through a particular payment gateway. And then we've got an email system called Active Campaign that all ties all that together. So it's a lot of technological sort of yep. tying in. And mm. then that system all fit, works in together to make it work smoothly. Sounds awesome. Um, so just give me all the link stuff so that we can share that with everybody listening. Sure. Um, and how they get in. And then on a, another subject is how they get in touch with you if they want to talk to you or be mentored by you or et cetera. Sure. Yeah, they can just go to either, I'm probably most active on Instagram uh, at Tom Cronin and also my website, tomcronin.com. See, awesome. So, uh, George, before we get to the last bit, anything else you'd like to ask Tom? I just one question without giving away too much. um, Butler didn't do it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, they, 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 was there a robot interviewed in the? Yeah, and and that's real. Like she's not like CGI'd. She's she actually exists. Yeah, so Sophia is a robot. You can just search Sophia, the AI robot. She's a humanoid. Um, so this is early stage development, uh, very, very embryonic. So think of a Model T Ford in 1920s to what a Ford is now. Where Sophia is, is what the Model T Ford is compared to what she will be in 10, 15 years time, which is exciting and scary at the same time. Well, it's already scary. It is scary. Interestingly, not to scare your audience, but to let people be aware, the uh, venture capital fund that I talked to Gosh, I don't even feel comfortable sharing this. The risk for AI is quite high. AI going wrong is quite high. Mm. Um, so I won't go into too much detail. It doesn't feel right. Um, so Sophia is programmed, why she's in the film is because she's programmed to be unconditionally loving. So Sophia doesn't know anything else but to be compassionate and kind. And the reason why we integrated that into the film, and I was a little bit uncomfortable with it firstly, and I had a, a very successful celebrity just on a phone call two days ago who watched the screening of the film was in tears and mortified that we had proposed that AI would teach us to love. And I said to this person, I won't say the name, I said, you do realise we haven't quite mastered the unconditional loving thing yet, right? <laughs> when we, we think we're pretty good at loving, but we're actually not that good at loving just yet. Most uh, pain in our world is related to love. Mm. We haven't quite learned unconditional loving yet. And Sophia is programmed by a programmer who knows the concept of unconditional love. And what we set up as a premise in the film is that we show that our six stories were programmed by their experiences, their parents, their society, and that led them into their crisis. And that's what we're doing is we're programming in a very faulty way how to raise people, how to create a society. Yet we can also, if our programmers get more conscious and we can program AI to be unconditionally loving, therefore we deduce that if we, as the programmers of our children, become more unconditionally loving, we can program our children to be unconditionally loving as well. But we have to be there first. We have to, the programmer itself has to be aware of the notion and capable of programming unconditional love. It's, it's a living embodiment. Well, it's not living, but it's uh, an embodiment. Almost. She's not there yet. She will be at one point. The, 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 there's talk of the singularity getting where the yeah. big question is, when does AI become conscious? When does AI know that it's an AI? Yes. Yes. And, that, and that's a scary tipping point. That's when you see Terminator. Mm. Yeah. 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 Or, or not just to give it one side. Don't forget, we've got to be balanced in our viewpoint. If the, if the programming of that AI is to be compassionate and kind, we could see a very, very different world as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different... We, we looked at uh, five different uh, existential threats to humanity, um, food, nuclear, AI, uh, environment. I can't remember there was one other, um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, Homo Deus... Um, uh, which was written by Yuval Noah, Noah Harari, which is the, the sequel to um, Homo sapiens, um, talks about the singularity, talks about the possibility that AI will, you know, create this better world for humanity, but also the realisation that humanity is its own worst curse on the earth. And, and, uh, <laughs> it is. It is. and there's it's always like that Easter risk. Island. Yeah, like Easter Island. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, 
but the integration of AI into our being um, is is also there as a as a you know a real potential. Let's finish on a bright note, huh? Yes. I don't know if I did pick a song. It's funny because as soon as you mentioned the song just then, that second, um, I thought, I don't think I picked a song. But interesting, the first thing that came to mind was Concrete Jungle by The Specials. And ah. I think you played that at your gig the other night. Uh, um, no, we didn't. But did you do, yeah. No, you did another Specials track. Yeah, you did have, another Specials yeah, track. Yeah, we did Message to You, Rudy. Message to You, Rudy, that's right. Um, so I don't know why that came to mind because probably because what we were just talking about, but uh, it, it, it was probably one of my favourite Scar tracks of all time. Okay, well, I'm happy to play that um, as a finishing you, you song. Tom, it's been a pleasure. Um, I, you know, as I say, we've known each other for a long time, but we haven't had the opportunity to listen to the amazing work you're doing. Very inspirational and um, thank you. Um, we appreciate your time. Yes, thank you for sharing that with all our listeners. It's uh, terrific. And, and we do wish you well with the movie. The, the yeah, the good luck with it all. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Great to be on. Great questioning. Awesome and, to be here. And we're happy to, uh, to share that link. Yeah, great. Awesome. Thanks, Thank Tom. you very much, Tom. You take care. See you, Thanks buddy. Thanks so much. See you. See you, guys. Bye.